Hello, Hackaroos. Mike Murphy here with a special introduction of today's Hacks on Tap. So, we all know things happen in politics, and they sure happen today. Earlier this morning, Axe and I recorded, along with our special guest hack, Mr. Paul Begala, a brand new episode of the Hacks on Tap podcast. But a few hours after we finished, Joe Biden, who clearly didn't get our memo, announced his choice for VP, Senator Kamala Harris of California. So we quickly grabbed special super hackeroo Robert Gibbs and knocked out a little mini episode we've already posted where we react to the Kamala Harris choice. Now, here's our regular episode that would have aired today as it was recorded without us knowing who the choice is. So you can hear all our dumb predictions now that we know what really happened. My wife, by the way, says to remind everybody that, as usual, my prediction was wrong about Harris not getting it, and she thought it would always be Harris. Okay, here's the show. I hope you enjoy. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Murphy, it is good to have you back. Uh, If you just asked me earlier, I would have sent the bail days ago. But uh, (laughs) we we missed you last week. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was like the Mark's Hour run amok. I got a few telegrams, but I, I am back from on assignment. Just keep an eye on those Pulitzer nominations in a year. And before we get into our amazing guest and old friend of both of ours today, I saw a little of that rioting on Chicago. So I just want to remind you, I get half the merch of anything you grab, Axe. I saw yes, a very figure yeah. in the background. I cannot joke about that, man. I'm grieving for my city right now. But yeah, let's bring in our buddy. Uh, one of the great hacks of all time, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Begala, and uh, not just a great hack and a, one of the brilliant strategists uh, that I've known, uh, but also a great author with a brand new book called You're Fired, The Perfect Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And people are looking, many, many people are looking for The Perfect Guide to uh, Beat Donald Trump. So this is a timely book, Begala. Well, thanks, Axe. Thanks, Murph. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with my fellow hacks. <laughs> yes. Well, let's start with the book because we are shameless uh, uh, purveyors <laughs> of commerce, too. So we'll give you the, the good layup question. Uh, give us the elevator pitch on the book. How do we beat Donald Trump? Uh, by not focusing on Donald Trump, by focusing on the voters. Uh, I say this uh, not because I'm smart, but because I got it wrong the last time. I was advising the super PAC whose job it was to take on Trump. We had $190 million. We ran ad after ad after ad about Trump's character. Oh, look, he said he'd grab women by the privates. Oh, look, he mocked a POW. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, he mocked a disabled man. And all those things are true. I don't regret them. And they were actually really creative, wonderful ads. But what I didn't do is connect it up to the life of a retiree in Pennsylvania, office worker in Michigan, a farmer in Wisconsin. I didn't show them that. This person of terrible character will hurt you. And I, yeah. I really did have this epiphany moment a couple of weeks after the election. My joke was, oh, after Trump won, I thought, oh, I sleep like a baby. And I wake up every two hours crying and piss the bed. <laughs> and one of those nights crying and pissing the bed, I had this epiphany. I thought of my wife's family. They're dairy farmers in Wisconsin. She's an army brat, but all her uncles and cousins are dairy farmers in Wisconsin. And I thought, you know, they saw our ad and they're good Midwestern folks. And they would have thought, well, you know, Gee, Harold, we could never be for a fellow like that. And Harold says, well, you're right, Ethel. He seems terrible. But then about three days before the election, Harold turns to her and says, you know, Ethel, he's not going to grab you by the privates. But he says he's going to reopen that factory where they laid off our son, Harvey. I didn't connect that up. I didn't show him that their Social Security, their Medicare, their job, their farm was at risk under this guy. And and so I'm begging Democrats to learn from that and make this election about voters, not Trump. You know, I'm here. I'm sitting here in uh, rural Michigan, and uh, I'll never forget sitting on the set at CNN the Saturday before the election. My wife called Susan and said, "Um, "You sure Hillary's going to win Michigan?" I said, "I don't know. That's that's what they think. They they think they're six points ahead there." She said, "Well, that may be, but every one of our neighbors has a Trump sign on their in their yards. That not lawns, by the way, yards and." and a lot, and a number of them are people I know voted for uh, Barack, and uh, right. you know that haunted me uh, going into election day. And of course, uh, Trump went on to narrowly uh, win Michigan. The difference now, 
it seems to me, you guys, is that uh, because of, you know, this uh, horrific pandemic, the cost of Trump yeah. is suddenly becoming clearer to people. They can connect now the cost of, you know, it used to be, yeah, he's a jerk, he's an asshole, I don't like him, I don't like his tweets, I don't like the way he behaves, but he's kicking people in the ass, things right. are pretty good, the economy's good. Um, he's lost that, and yeah. uh, that that is his problem right now. Well, what happened to him is, you know, for some presidents, something that can be really good, but for him it was really bad, which is the stakes got raised. All of a sudden, we needed a president, and we had a reality show. So it went from a politics of Hannity versus Rachel, Mueller versus, you know, Trump, sideshow in Washington to something where your brother-in-law's restaurant's chaptered out, and you're, you're getting into the retirement fund to be able to pay your mortgage. And so all of a sudden, when the stakes are high, Trump has, has filled that equation, and we, we all see the data that's hurt him politically. But the question is going forward. So we got a big bunch of news coming shortly here. I'm back. I'm rusty, but I'm trying for the transition. Uh, Biden's VP. <laughs> we, we recognize uh, it. Yeah, that was a wobble, wasn't it? But I, I <laughs> landed the plane. I got us Whoa. there. Whoa. There a you go. Trained professional Seat right belts there. on. So anyway. Smooth <laughs> as a baby's ass, Murphy. Well, that, that, that's, that's why I get the low dollars here at the, uh, the all-powerful Hacks on Tap uh, where uh, we're taking any ad. Um, okay, so let's get to it, though. Biden's got to be a VP. Uh, you know what's been interesting to me? I'll start it out by throwing some out to see what you guys think. The the inside game, as you both know, on these VP choices is kind of like the duck's feet under the water. There's always a lot going on. This time it's gotten a little public. People are dropping oppo on each other. What's your take on the current state of it? We're going to get a name pretty soon. Well, Joe Biden is the dominant figure in the Democratic Party. That's a hard thing to stomach or to, to, to wrap your mind around after eight years of President Obama. But we've gone through a transition. Joe Biden won 45 caucuses and primaries, 45. Now, because of American Samoa and U.S. Virgin Islands, there's probably about 55 or so, 54. He won 45 contests. He had 17,660,000 Democrats vote for him. He can pick anyone he wants. And he needs to pick the best governing choice. And I, I do uh, uh, certainly respect the fact that the main reason he's the nominee is because of African-Americans, particularly African-American women. And I would love it if he picks an African-American woman. But the truth is, it, Democrats uh, love this guy. Uh, I thought the, the guy who probably played the most important role in Joe getting the nomination, of course, is Jim Clyburn. And Mr. Clyburn has said publicly, he can pick anybody he wants for vice mm -hmm. president. But I want to see an African-American woman on the Supreme Court where the real power is. And I was like, there's a guy who knows how to wield power, Jim Clyburn. He's an amazing guy. So uh, he can pick anybody he wants. And uh, the, the party will rally around her, I promise. Don't you think, Axe? Yeah, I do. But I, I don't know that that's his thinking. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the fact is that Biden, at the end of the day, is a pretty conventional politician. I mean, he thinks in, in pretty conventional political terms. And right now, the conventional wisdom is that... Um, he should pick an, uh, an African-American or a, a candidate of color. And that and the conventional wisdom is that it is it, Kamala Harris is that candidate. And so, you know, she started off as the odds on favorite. And by the time, by the way, people hear this, we may know. But she started off uh, as the odds on uh, favorite to be the pick. And my guess is she remains the favorite. There's you know, it was leaked. Uh, and I suspect by the Biden campaign that Gretchen Whitmer uh, had visited with him last Sunday for an interview. No other interview had been leaked. And uh, Whitmer has been the most buttoned down of all the candidates, uh, you know, about her interactions with uh, with with uh, Biden. So I assume that that they leaked it because they wanted to see what reaction they would get if it appeared as if he was going to pick her because she is white. And and there was a there was a reaction. Uh, and, you know, the question is, there are a lot of reasons why Whitmer would make sense. She's a, uh, she's a, she's the governor of a Midwestern mm -hmm. battleground state. She's a center-left Democrat. She would be a very uh, un inconvenient target for Trump. Uh, and and uh, for, by personality and temperament, she would be a good governing uh, partner. She's been a governor. She's run something. You can hand her big projects as Obama handed uh, uh, Biden big projects. But she's also 
you know, Biden has to make a gut gut check as to who he feels comfortable with and who, you know, this is an unusual situation, you guys, because it is almost certain that even though he hasn't said it, Biden will not run for president again in 2024. He'll be 81 years old, 82 by the time the next president uh, uh, after this takes office. So whoever he picks is going to be a presumptive candidate. And you want to make sure that it's someone who is uh, focused on the task of being vice president and supporting him and not making decisions as the presumptive nominee in 2024. And I think that's a judgment that these interviews, uh, you know, give him the opportunity to make. And that may send him in a different direction. Uh, but right now, uh, I think Harris is the uh, is the path of least resistance, frankly. You know, and I think he will. And I think that it's more likely than not that he'll pick her. I'm actually short Harris. I mean, I got no special insight here, but I don't think it will be Harris because I don't think she's You're a not good even choice. A freaking Democrat, man. You yeah, yeah I know, but I'm I'm the kind of suburban Republican Biden needs to win. He's, the one problem <laughs> Biden doesn't have is African American voters. If it wasn't for that voting group and Jim Clyburn, he would have lost in the first two most important primaries. He got killed when there were other choices. So I'm with Paul. He can pick anybody he wants to, but we're in this world now where he quote has to do this and has to do that. But I don't think Karen Bass is over. Yeah, she's a little soft mm-hmm. on Thetans and Castro. But she's the Biden of the House. She's a legislator, gets away of everybody. She doesn't want the job. She won't be thinking about how it'll play in Derry, New Hampshire on day 11. So I, I don't count her out. Now, of course, the obvious choice is Gina Raimondo, the greatest Democratic governor in the country, who <laughs> okay. I shamelessly plug. And thank you last week for... for this is a drinking game we play here, Begali. He, he mentions it every show. <laughs> the governor, I've yeah. been unable to get her on the short list, which is a tragedy. So I don't know. I just don't think it will be Harris because I think the politics of it, weak candidate in 2024, and frankly, the scrutiny thing. She got a you know a nasty little news cycle out of Willie Brown, the former California speaker, uh, talking about you know how, I mean, he kind of endorsed her, but he said for AG, but she shouldn't take the job for VP. So I don't know. I, I'm just going to stay short her despite what conventional wisdom says. I might be wrong. Here's the argument. Here's the, and, and, and I, I look, um, I want to I want to raise a couple of controversial things in a second, but cool. here here's here would be the argument for her. Uh, she is um, she wh- whatever you think, uh, being a United States senator from a big state, and being uh, and and having run for president, even though she didn't run for president particularly well, gives her the patina of someone who's ready to be president. And when you have a seventy seven year old candidate, that becomes more important. People want to know that the person who's vice president is ready uh, to be president. She obviously uh, will answer the call of those who, who are looking uh, for a, uh, a woman of color on the ticket. And uh, she has had the experience of running. And so even though she didn't do particularly well, she knows what the maelstrom and crazy right. pace of presidential campaigns are. Those are all the arguments for Kamala Harris. She's the path of least resistance. In this crazy environment in which we're in, the, uh, the conventional choice is the, is the um, uh, Jamaican, Indian-American <laughs> senator from California. Right, that's uh, but, a Democrat's version of plain vanilla. It's just, <laughs> I love my party. <laughs> well, I think, I think actually you point to one of the most important qualifications as a candidate for vice president, which is, have you run for president before and failed miserably? <laughs> I mean it. You, you, you and I know this. We've been through this. Murph's been through this. Uh, uh, yes, Kamala ran a, a bad campaign. She had no core message and she lost, but she's been through it and she has learned, I presume. Mm. Uh, Al Gore ran for president before 1988, ran a terrible campaign, embarrassed himself and made a terrific vice president, both as a candidate on the stump and as a governing partner. Joe Biden had run twice before and never gotten a delegate, certainly never got a primary, never won a single state in two president. Obama picked him. So it's two things. First off, these people learn. Kamala's fierce and smart. So she has learned a ton. I guarantee you that you cannot learn any other way, even governing a big state. And second, um, the national press has vetted her. And uh, this is critically important. If, if the national media has to Wikipedia you, has to Google your Wikipedia page on the day of the announcement, 
that's going to be a problem. No, it's not a huge problem. There'll be three or four days where they churn through the oppo. And you, you did depending you see what's on your Wikipedia page, I guess. Well, but the, you saw this ridiculous uh, attack on Karen Bass, right? Yeah. Oh, she went and spoke at the opening of a Church of Scientology in her district. In her district, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the Republicans very upset that a politician spoke in front of a church and didn't even have the decency to tear gas anyone. <laughs> so I, I love her. She, by the way, Karen Bass, Karen Bass won the 2010 JFK Profiles and Courage Award 10 years ago. Remarkable leader. Yeah, yeah. no, Karen Bass is solid. I had her on my podcast uh, the uh, last week. And, you know, she's got a great story. Murphy knows it because he was there when she was Speaker of the House when mm -hmm. Schwarzenegger was. Uh, governor, she's a high character person. My my feeling is that she could emerge here as a uh, at the top of the list of people to succeed Pelosi when whenever Pelosi decides to leave. But uh, I do think that the knife job that was done on her is going to have an impact on the uh, on this particular totally uh, unfair. And by the way, this process. whole notion that Eddie Rendell, the former chair of our party, <laughs> saying, "Oh, Kamala Rumps, go ahead, go ahead, tee up." That I just it so pisses me off. <laughs> Kamala's too ambitious. That's a job requirement. You're yeah. talking about somebody running for president. You're talking about somebody now thinking about vice president. Oh, she's or she rubs people the wrong way. Give okay, but it is break. it is true. I and you guys know this. And again, I the nice thing is I don't get the incoming phone call from the VP in three years, so I can be ridiculous <laughs> about this. But if you were to put the top 150 Democratic polls in California in a room and do a secret ballot, Kamala would lose the past three to one. They don't like her. She has fans, hmm. but it, I mean, it's not. Why? Because I love her. I think she's terrific. I'm serious. I don't have a favorite. I really yeah. don't. But well, you're not a California. She, she's charming. She's smart. The California hacks. She carved up William In all the internal stuff, sharp elbows. I mean, you know, I don't know what it is, but I'm just telling you, out here or out there, it, it's a thing. Now, that doesn't mean he won't pick her. And that doesn't mean she couldn't be an effective VP if they really staff her well. Left her own devices, I think you get her presidential campaign. But we'll find out. That bar thing you mentioned, Paul, is something that yeah. I forgot, which is, you oh. know, the, 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 the task of a vice presidential candidate is to really be the point of the spear and the attack yeah. on the other side. Uh, she has that prosecutorial flair and she can debate and uh, effectively given the brief. And she... Uh, so, so that will be a factor. I mean, when we uh, uh, picked Biden, that experience uh, was a was a factor. So here's the third rail question that will ensure that we get nasty tweets and uh, correspondences. Cool. But um, on the political calculation, you know, the, a lot has been written about how Biden would be uh, it would be politically dangerous for him not to pick. A, a, a woman of color but it seems to me that um if he's going to lose this election as you said murphy he's going to lose it because trump is able to pull away those voters who have drifted from him mm -hmm. uh and i'm not sure that biden getting attacked for picking say whitmer a a a, a moderate you know center left uh governor from the midwest uh i'm not sure that that is helpful to Trump's project, you know, I think all of that uh, disapprobation that would come Biden's way might actually strengthen him in places where uh, Trump is hoping to make mm -hmm. inroads. So, you know, I, it's unpopular to say such a thing among Democrats, but uh, I think that's a if you're making cold, hard political calculations, I tend to agree with Paul that the big issue is you have short term considerations, which is who can help you win. it. And I think the God's honest truth is vice presidential candidates have minimal effect on the outcome Absolutely. of an election. And then there's the long term issue. And it's even greater here, which is what kind of governing partner are they? And right. in this case, you may be picking the nominee for 2024. So what kind of candidate might they be in 2024? This is a complex set of uh, uh, of standards one has to apply here, of tests one has to apply here. So, well, it's like short term pain and gain versus long term strategy. I'm a thousand. I think Whitmer would be a terrific choice, and she's my second favorite after Raimundo. Uh, if Amy Klobuchar <laughs> was still around, I'd be saying that because again, you want to win the suburbs. You don't want to give Trump an angle, and Trump's a racist, and so you just you add some risk with this. And so, yeah, and I'm I'm hoping the Whitmer interview was real. I think she'd be a very smart choice. She's almost the Raimundo of Michigan. So, yeah. <laughs> I, but, you know, I, we're, because it's the news of the week, 
I do think we're sort of overanalyzing this. It's yeah, yeah, it's still VP. two or three news cycles, it's, two or three yeah. news cycles around what, the announcement what the, hell, it's the convention. Fun. Two or three news cycles around the debate and nothing more. So seriously, if if you've been through right. this, X, I've been through this. Yes. I was astonished at how quickly and certainly Clinton focused on Gore after they interviewed. He sat out with Gore. They, these two were not close. They had sort of circled each other warily to lead the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and they, they were not buddies. And yet after the interview, right away, Clinton like pointed at the door and was like, I'm going to pick him. And I'm like, Why? And, uh, you know, I did. I was like, he's the same age. He's the same region. He's the same religion. He's the same ideology. What does he bring? And he said, Polly, I might die. And I'm like, holy shit. Um, and it, it turned out also that I, I suspect President Obama saw this in, in Biden. Is it Gore had strengths where Clinton was weak. Gore knew everything about the environment and cared deeply. Clinton didn't know much about it. It was pretty weak about it. it Gore was really expert on tech. Clinton knew that that was the future, but wasn't as expert in it at all as Gore. So he saw these terrific strengths in Gore. Um, and he thought, this is the guy who I want to step in. And he did not anticipate that until they went through the process. But it's interesting, though, because those were long-term, they were long-term considerations. They were governing considerations. Right. We right. He said in nothing Biden, about we saw, Gore we saw we saw in Biden complimentary pieces for the election. You know, he was an older white guy from the mid, uh, from uh, from the uh, Pennsylvania, working class guy, Catholic. He had a lot of uh, political virtues, but we also saw in him a guy who had been in Washington for thirty six years and right. knew his way around there. Uh, Obama's relatively new. He was known around the world. I mean, there were these complimentary governing pieces. But you raise the most important point, which is this is all a bunch of bullshit. If Biden makes a decision in the next few hours. Well, uh, our uh, engineer there, uh, Jeff Fox, is putting this. Well, thing let's together. let's give Jeff something to edit. We predict it's Duckworth, Whitmer, Bass, Harris. All right, good. Now we're covered for the last edit. I want to go back to Paul's point for a minute, and then maybe we're Raimondo. Raimondo, exactly. Yeah, don't forget Which Raimondo, is the smartest man. pick for governing and politics, but. To Paul's point, I thought Clinton was brilliant, and I always point to that pick as the best example of what to do, because politically, Clinton picked a slightly less impressive version of himself. Another moderate, sunbelt, new Democrat, centrist, generational change, so there was no daylight. Daylight's trouble. Ask John McCain about daylight when you pick a, a, a running mate mm -hmm. who becomes a bigger point of focus than you are. And that is the danger I think Team Biden ought to be very hip to. And lastly, any... Duckworth, anybody else you think is plausible that might pop out? We've talked about Bass and Harris and Whitmer. Su Susan Rice, yeah, we have not point. talked about yeah, Susan. She's Susan an Rice, old pal of mine, friend of yours, Dave. We both served with her in different uh, White Houses. She is so smart and so strong. And, you know, uh, uh, let me speak against our party acts. Too many Democrats are whips. <laughs> They're not tough. And Susan is so strong. She and I love that about her. You know, my definition of a liberal is someone who's afraid to take his own side in a fight. Susan ain't afraid to fight. And I, I want her. Uh, she picks the vice president. That's great. She needs to be in charge of a special project, which is destroying Putin. I want her to be secretary of war because she is so tough. Uh, Putin, he would he would he would. Uh, crap all over those horses he rides bare chested if he saw that Susan Rice was in a position of power in the new administration. I love that woman. Now she and she look she has another asset which is is as as a former national security advisor she's mm -hmm. had a more intimate uh view of the presidency. She understands yeah. the presidency at a level that none of the other candidates uh do and that is a real advantage if you're talking about someone who may have to take over the job the, the experience she doesn't have is running for, running for office huge I'm liability she never run. but you were there dave i mean how did she interact with biden she was the u.n ambassador when i was there so that, so i didn't see them interact that much but those who did when she was the uh, national security advisor said their relationship was good and that is valuable to biden uh, because he's a relationships guy. He understands how how important the relationship is between the president and the, and the VP. But look, I think we 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 should shelve this uh, because uh, we <laughs> may go just... on forever and right. He may be announcing right now <laughs> while we're recording. Yeah, exactly. It. We've talked a lot. We've talked about it long enough to give him time to set up a press conference for sure. All right. Let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. 
You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Let's transport through time and space and pretend with the power <laughs> that the Hacks on Tap uh, podcast has to bend physics and pretend we're watching television right now in Orlando, Florida. I want to play an ad you're going to see to kind of shift over to how the president's gone into saber-tooth mode. So I want you two veteran mm -hmm. hackeroos to listen to this, and let's talk about the president a little bit. Joe Biden says, If you elect me, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. That means middle-class families, small businesses, and seniors pay higher taxes. It's the biggest tax increase in history. Citizenship for 11 million undocumented folks. That means 11 million illegal immigrants competing for American jobs, eligible for free health care, Social Security, and Medicare. America can't afford Joe Biden. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Well, there it is. Back to the Republican hits with a little Trump uh, ec extra acid sauce put in. They're up with a pretty big buy in the swing states. What do we think? Trump seems to be getting into full attack mode now. I think this is exactly, this is, they, you know, they pulled the whole thing into dry dock <laughs> after they changed managers. And this is their first product after. And, you know, frankly, it's pretty conventional yeah. kind of a re a Republican uh Attacks. They took Biden out of context. Of course, he was at, a, I think, a fundraiser and he was responding to a wealthy donor who asked uh, a question about that. And he was very honestly telling him, yeah, your your taxes are going to go up. And they uh, took the bite as diabolical media consultants will do. Kind of like that Romney and, waiter uh, thing, you know, <laughs> damn fundraisers always get you in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, no, those fundraisers are actually very, those are the most treacherous place in politics because these candidates feel like they're among friends. But I think this is more what we're going to see now. And you, you know, it was interesting. Trump had this, uh, I wish we had the tape of it, but, you know, he went nuts last, late last week, uh, you know, saying Biden is against God and uh, a few other things. <laughs> like Trump is for God, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always say the only commandments he hasn't violated or the ones he hasn't read <laughs> but uh but then he went and he met with his advisors on friday uh he did have a little bit of a crazy ass um uh thing on uh press thing on saturday when he released these um these strange executive orders that will and which we will get to but yesterday he had a um he had a, br a presser uh, at the white house 
And he was very much focused on these sort of your taxes will go up. They're going to, you know, federal, they're going to go, you know, on health care, take 180 million people's health care policies away and so on. And it struck me that they are focusing their attack more and they're getting into more traditional kind of Republican themes. I think you're right. And I think that that has a lot more power than Trump freelancing. Right. <laughs> and the, the, the notion that Joe Biden is against God. Uh, it's preposterous. And no one. I mean, I talked to God and he's like, no, no. <laughs> Good with Joe. I love Joe. And by the way, he loves President Trump, too. Regular listener, um, by the way. He's a big fan <laughs> yeah. of the, the He doesn't have tax. a lot of time for podcasts, but this is pretty much the one. <laughs> yeah. It's, we're but, such an honor, really. But so I do think that, that the more, just like with Biden, I'm advising him through the book, that the more conventional sort of meat and potatoes campaign is going to be more effective. I, I do advocate in the book, which I'm holding up now for our, <laughs> your I got my copy right here, brother. Oh, there you go. You I bought one hacks, or did you get a freebie? Did mine fall off the truck? What happened here? Did I not send you? No, one? send You're it so over. Covetous. I'll plug it. I, I need to. With chapter ten, I make the case that the COVID crash aside, Democrats Biden needs to put the Trump economic philosophy on trial, and this is standard Democratic populism. Trump has a $2.3 trillion tax cut, $2.3 trillion, all targeted at corporate America. Now, at the time he passed it, before he passed it, corporate profits were at a record high. It was just not a crisis. You can make the argument we needed to update the tax code for business. I'm not against that. But $2.3 trillion to give to corporations, where acts your boss, Barack Obama, saved the entire global economy for $830 billion. So more than twice what Obama spent to save the whole world. He spent on corporate America. 81% of that went to the top 1% of income earners. It did no good to cushion us against this, this crash. Joe is taking that fight right to that populist turf. And there were a lot of Trump voters who are economic populists. And they liked Trump's trade protectionism or whatever. I think that's really fertile territory for the Democrats. They should welcome a tax fight. Joe should take on that, that ad where they quote him saying, your tax is going to go. So yeah, I was talking to Donald Trump and the rest of his plutocrat buddies. If you're in the middle class, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that you get a tax cut or whatever his policy is, you know, but if you're one of those Trump plutocrats hanging out at one of his stupid country clubs, that country club in Bedminster, I looked it up. It costs 350 grand just to join. Now, how many Trump voters, blue collar working people got 350 grand sitting in their pocket to go play Whenever my pal golf with a bunch of corporate. But criminals. in fairness, did you did you hear the presser? He at the end of it, when he signed the executive or orders, he said, who wants a signing pen? And all these club members were, I want one. I want one. And Trump was handing out signing pens to uh, to uh, uh, guests of Bedminster and club members. Uh, no, the, the whole thing is sick. And I, I agree with Paul. They, they should engage. I disagree with Paul on the corporate thing, but we'll argue about that in another podcast. But I know my friend is worked up when I hear three plutocrats in one screen. That's a, so three plutocrats yeah, were in yeah, a room. Exactly. They had a screw in a light bulb. Yeah. Three plutocrats are on this on well, this I was podcast. Say, I, We've all been so th blessed in th this country. <laughs> Plutocrat club. We're meeting a little later. There's apparently some problem with this yeah. year's Bentley we got to get into. Uh, but to the point, they should engage on taxes because one, one thing about that issue, and Dems like to scoff at it a little bit, but that is a playbook we have run. I've run it a bunch and knocked off a lot of Democratic politicians. And everybody from Sargent up in the Republican Party has been trained since the crib to run that campaign. So what Steppy and the new campaign manager is trying to do is kind of ignore the Trump crazy because he can't fix it, but put the machine and 30 million bucks worth of advertising on playing the old hits because he knows the machine can do that even with Trump ringing around in his underwear in the White House screaming like a chimp. And it, it's not the slickest move in the world, but at least it's offense. And I think if the Biden guys don't handle it right, they're going to they're gonna put some dents on them, and these happy polls are going to tighten. One acknowledgment that Paul is, is, is right about this is that Trump at his presser yesterday uh, called for, a, promised a middle-class tax cut uh, after the election. We're going to have another tax cut, and it's just going to be for the middle class he said. And uh, so it's obvious that their polling uh, reflects this conversation. They know this is a vulnerability for Trump and they want to go on the they want to go on the offense on taxes, but they know they have a flank they have to guard there. 
And so uh, that that supports uh, uh, Paul's theory. And I think it'll, you know, look, I think there is a lot to, um, you know, keeping the focus on the virus, keeping the focus on Trump's malfeasance and misfeasance uh, through what is the dominant story and keeping the focus on, you know, this, the, the kind of intangibles of empathy and, uh, uh, you know, the ability to care about other people than yourself and so on that people yearn for in a president. But you have to have an economic mm-hmm. thread here. You have right. to have an economic right. argument because ultimately uh, that is always central. And the danger for Biden is that somehow Trump gets this back on an economic right. argument and, uh, and you know, people say, I, I believe he has a better chance to get this economy going. He's going to be better for me. Uh, so, uh, but the best thing about Biden on this is that he is authentically by, of, and for the American middle class. You know, he was not infected even all those years in Washington by the sort of uh, economic royalists who tend to dominate uh, both parties in many cases. He is at his core. The, here's a good example. This is like one of the things I watch to see, are you dialed in? Uh, Trump on Saturday has these executive orders and blah, blah. They pretend to help some people with unemployment and suspend student loans, blah, blah. The most important thing is it suspends collection of the payroll tax. Now, some Democrats looked at that and said, oh, that's unconstitutional. You know, Lawrence Tribe at Harvard won't like it. It's not what Joe said. By the way, Lawrence Tribe actually took Joe's side and my side on this. First thing Joe did was tweet out the payroll tax funds, Social Security and Medicare. What Trump is proposing would financially ruin Social Security and Medicare. And in one tweet, he had Social Security and Medicare like four times. That's what Democrats need to do. They need to, again, I say it in the book, they set your Apple Watch every 10 minutes, whatever you're talking about, interrupt yourself and say, oh, by the way, Trump wants to cut Social Security (laughs) and Medicare. Again, it's great because the campaign will devolve into both sides playing their hits because both things kind of work. Now, one one point of data about all this, just to reinforce X's point about the Biden guys have to keep an eye on it. Uh, I'm working with Republican voters against Trump, our vet.org, and we're about to make a lot of trouble in Florida because I think it's the key to the election. So we did a poll of Republicans and independents, no Democrats. And on the ballot, when we turned down the poll, we said, are you firmly committed to a candidate? They said, Trump, we hung up. They said, Biden, we hung up. So we basically got independents and ours who do not say they're locked into Trump. They're either leaning or open. And we asked them, who's the better manager of the economy, Trump or Biden? And Trump beats him two to one still uh, among among that group. Right. So yeah. if they can break yeah. Trump there, they got him. But Trump has some equity there. Right. And if he can get the tax thing to catch on in the suburbs because the Biden people don't engage and knock it back, it, it'll be some traction for him. It's going to be the thing to watch in September, right. I think. But Gal, are you, are you still working with priorities? I'm not. No, I, I left uh, the super PAC after the last election. I no longer advise politicians or PACs for a living. I do it for free. (laughs) I'm allowed to do fundraisers or like to call in kibitz, as we say in the Catholic Church. But I I do not. uh, So I I miss it because it was uh, a great way to stay engaged. It was a great way to have data like Mike has all the time. Yes. But at the same time, as you know, it it made it harder to be a a, a fair commentator or, you know, a fully independent. So now I have this lovely gig at CNN and other things. And so I'm totally a free agent. I'm a free agent who loves Joe Biden. I agree with you. I, I think that, I mean, obviously I've been divorced from this for, uh, since the, uh, since the Obama campaign in 2012, but boy, the thing I miss the most is the fix of data, uh, you know, just the constant flow of polling and, and, and qualitative, uh, coming in. So you could really get a feel for what was you going can on. You still get uh, that. Here's what I miss, particularly cause of stinking COVID, um, in 2018, Working for no PACs, but I, I at the beginning of that cycle, right after Trump was elected, I went to Nancy Pelosi and I said, I'll do anything you want. I'll go anywhere you want. You have to take back that house. My only condition is you can't pay me. And she said, I've never I heard I that, that pitch before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, you are one shrewd negotiator. She said, boy, I should have sold on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> My God. But so. so Nancy Pelosi, not yet speaker again, sent me all around the country. And my condition for each campaign was I'll go wherever Pelosi tells me, not going to do anything for any any Pelosi people because I love her. And second, I'll do whatever fundraisers you want. That's always what they want. But my price is 
I get to go by the headquarters and hang out with the staff. That's what yeah, I Yeah, no, I well that I, obviously three that, of my four yeah. boys are working in democratic politics now. And those yeah. those kids, those young no, people. Oh, oh. One of the reasons I, I, I started the Institute of Politics yeah. was I just wanted to be around these young people. Yeah. Uh, who are just so inspiring. I love, by the way, I love the inscription uh, to your book, which I, I, I have to uh, I have to read because it it, it says says so much. It was uh, dedicated to your wife, but also to your sons, your four sons, and you said, who you said, uh, you said your activism, your patriotism, your idealism, your enthusiasm, your brilliance, and that of your generation will save us. I was so moved by that because it's what I believe. Uh, and you, you know, the thing about these young people is they're filled with uh, possibility and and their and 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 a sense of what can be, and uh, they have the energy to pursue it. And so you're absolutely right about that. But but we digress. But it we, is over history. Actually, Joe needs yeah, to do better with kinks. young voters. This is a liability he has. Yeah. He does and better these, than he ought to with old voters. Yet anyway, that's a fascinating kind yes. of. Yes. Well, and the social security piece is not going to hurt him there either. But the, so. the under thgs he really needs to focus on. And, and actually, you've got the Institute at University of Chicago. I teach. Let at me Georgetown. plug the USC Center for the Political Future. I'm co-director here. Just to, before <laughs> you guys start hugging. We're we're around these twenty somethings all the time. Plus, I have four sons who are twenty somethings, and and their buddies and and girlfriends are all around. And I mean this, I think of when I came of age in the age of Reagan, he came to my student body president. He came to my campus for a reelection rally in 1984. It's the biggest rally you ever saw. He carried UT Austin in a landslide. Today, go to any campus, you go to any place young people are gathered and they are, they're progressive. Yes. And, and people worry, oh, they're socialists. You know how they're responding to this crisis? They're not doing what the 60s generation did. They're not bombing the ROTC building. You know what they're doing? They're registering voters. They're doing the most kind of patriotic things you could possibly do. And they're happy to work in harness with us old hacks to get voters registered, mobilized, motivated, informed to the polls. It's like the really it's it, it, it really is like the greatest generation coming home from the war and just throwing themselves into democracy. I'm serious. I love these this young generation. I know we older boomers are supposed to piss on them, but they're way better than we were. Well, I like pissing on them once in a while myself, but. I'll, I'll just very quickly, um, and then we'll move on to the executive orders or post office. We got a lot to cover and rang out of time. But what has impressed me as an old college Republican, I got started in this wreck, and, and well, I was actually a Republican before that, but at the Georgetown College Republicans, of which I was once the esteemed chairman mm -hmm. due to our lax ballot security laws, um, in several <laughs> of the CR uh, groups are breaking away and joining the anti-Trump movement because the kids know. They didn't become wow. conservatives for right? a hackneyed, corrupt populist uh, thug and who doesn't believe in the rule of law. And that, wow. to me, is a huge sign of hope for the future of the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Wow. That's huge. I did not know that, Murph. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Speaking of the rule of law, what about these executive orders? You know, to me, they they were um, classic Trump, which was he went out there to try and seize the day, but they don't have any long term meaning. They're like, uh, you know, they're like a, a, a meal that leaves you hungry 10 minutes later. Uh, they did give that target uh, that uh, Paul suggests on the Social Security issue. But does this does this stuff really mean anything? What is the political import of it? Seems to me they're going to have to come back to the negotiating table and actually do something. Yeah, it, it, it's a DC food fight. Although it did right. lure Ben Sass out of his right. Don Knotts hiding chamber, uh, <laughs> to his credit. I thought the fact that the Nebraska primary was over, uh, had yeah, something no, to do no, with no. That. It's like the chains have been slackened on him, and I'll take converts. Uh, about time. But no, I think this is another D.C. thing. Out in the real world, it's an auction between who wants to give you more money. I'm personally for the Geithner-Sutherland uh, plan, uh, um, excuse me, Geithner-Hubbard, the bipartisan thing for 400 bucks and some more. But they're going to have to ha hack it out. And the, frankly, the Democrats have the political advantage because people need money and they're offering more. I hope that it, it gets, it, this is an impossible thing, but it should be taken out of the context of politics or or. Maybe the politics will respond to the reality, but boy, there are a lot of frightened people out there right now. Yeah. Um, 
we are looking at evictions, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression. We are looking at bankruptcies, the likes of which we haven't seen, at least since the Great Recession uh, of 2009. We're looking at an economic catastrophe. And uh, they're, they're Trump and them are twiddling their thumbs. The Democrats have, because elections matter, they have the House. And they have leading the House the toughest and most experienced person we could have. She, Nancy Pelosi is a hero of this book, by the way. I mean, she is the, I've worked under and with and around, I don't know, seven speakers or something, by far the best legislative leader I have ever seen. And so she's going to be in there fighting on, on, on the front of all of, uh, on the front of all these middle-class issues, but also to transition to the next issue. I know you guys want to talk about also to save and protect the postal service. Right to save and protect ballot security and election security. She's going to make sure that funding is in there. I'm serious. I, I, she has beat Trump at every negotiation, and I predict she's going to beat him at this one. Well, let's talk about that because you, in your book, uh, Chapter Seven, Banana Republicans, you talk about. Oh, Lord. You talk about. <laughs> Uh, there, there is a plutocrat chapter, right? There's punishing plutocrats. You're good. Pompous purple plutocrats. How many plutocrats does it take to screw the electrician? Here is the uh, here is the uh, in this chapter you talk you know there are flashbacks to to 2016 when Trump was uh, alleging fraud uh, m you know months before the election of course he alleged fraud months after the election even though he won because he'd lost the popular vote uh, right. and uh, no fraud was ever detected but there is this question of the post office and we should explain why this is important because if you have a country where the majority of people are voting by mail and they're relying and you're relying on ballot applications to get to them their ballots to get back if the ballot is flawed the election authority is sending it back to them to cure the problem and make sure that their vote can be tabulated and then the ballot arriving in time to be counted um I mean, it seems to me this is a real concern. The post, everybody reports the post office has slowed down. They have a new director, a, a big Trump donor who just, uh, you know, ended overtime, fired 23 managers. Uh, and and you have Trump predicting that the, tr the post office can't handle the load. Uh, it seems like he's trying to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, that would require bad faith. So I'm kind of shocked to think of the Trump administration. So this is a bugaboo of mine. I'm going to give a super obscure reference. But if you go to the Price to Value podcast from Southeastern Asset Manager, a great value investing firm, they had Fred Smith, uh, yeah, the, from the guy who invented FedEx on about a year ago. And he was predicting kind of the collapse of the Postal Service for a lot of structural reasons. It's shrinking. They've got a lot of problems. And he predicted this was coming. Well, it's just our bad luck in the age of Trump that it's it, his prediction is coming true. It's systemically breaking down just at the time we're going to have this huge surge of absentee ballots. And by the way, Republicans invented permanent absentee. It is good for us. The RNC hacks are terrified every time the president goes out there and says, don't trust the voodoo of uh, the Postal Service and absentee ballots because he's going to murder Republican voters who want to vote absentee. So this whole perfect storm is hit, and then Trump puts some knucklehead donor in charge who thinks it's his job to whack the budget even more at a time when, for democracy reasons, we really need the post office to get patched together. So th this is a real terrible problem. Uh, and, um, it, it's going to be a thing. There's going to be, there's going to be all kinds of, uh, a trouble, uh, coming forward and not just trouble going in, but going out. But, but you're right in traditionally Republicans have feasted off of absentee ballot. Oh, we love it. But you look at polling now and because the president has so stigmatized mail-in voting, the, the, the preponderance of voters who say they're going to vote by mail are Democrats. So this could actually be a real problem for Democrats. Yeah. Dave Wasserman uh, over, I think I may have said this last week, but Dave Wasserman uh, over at, um, at Cook did a study and concluded that there's a real measurable loss that could accrue to Democrats because well, you of, saw what of Trump the just did. thing. But, except Florida's perfect. Yes. Vote twice by mail there. There's nothing wrong with the right. Florida stamps. Yes. It's only the ones in New York that you can <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly transparent, but it's a real problem. The other thing is, is absentee use surges, which has been the trend anyway, and now made even more, it's going to look more like the general election, which as of today looks more Democrat. So, Right. 
Well, but also it's going to really pose a challenge to the media. So Axe, you and I will be sitting on that set election night and the, the, the vast majority of Biden voters, the majority say they're going to vote by mail or absentee or both the majority. Okay. Usually absentees are maybe five or 10%, five probably of the entire electorate. It's now going to be more than 50. I believe more than half the country to vote by mail. So the, uh, the election day in-person vote is actually not going to be at all reflective of the country. It's going to be disproportionately Trump folks because he's pissing all over voting by mail, telling his people to risk their health to go and vote in person. So the exit polling and the actual count on election night is likely to skew way toward Trump, which will allow this banana Republican to say, look, I won. And then when they ca- he has a strategy when they count the real votes that come in. Well, the rest of the votes, they're real in person too. the rest of the votes when they come in through the mail, he's going to lose badly. And see, he's going to say, oh, look, that was fraud. And it is setting he's setting himself up. Uh, I really believe this uh, for civil unrest. I think he's going to call. As you say election day will be five days long and the networks aren't ready for that. I keep yelling at NBC about right. this. They, they focus on getting they Blitzer be. or Rachel a jetpack to be able to go up nine stories to paint Oklahoma. Well, this thing is going to be a week long deal and it's a totally different thing they got to cover. Right. Uh, you guys say five days. I think that this thing is going to drag on. I think that... Oh, it could be a couple of weeks. Yeah, I've said before, the, 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 the words that Donald Trump will never say is, the people have spoken, <laughs> and I honor their judgment. That is not what he's going to say. If he, What he's going to say is, I was ahead, and now these fraudulent ballots are coming in. They're stealing the election. And his, uh, you know, I think he will, leave, he will leave office saying that he was, you know, thrown from office uh, by fraud and corruption, and that is going to be an overhang. Paul, you lived through uh, Gore, uh, v, uh, Bush v. Gore in uh, in two thousand, and uh, and and you know, it really was a horrible ho- overhang on government as Bush came to office. I mean, nine eleven came along and that transformed things, but it it did real damage, you know that battle and this is gonna that's gonna be like child's play compared to what right. we're gonna see because you have a guy as murphy says with bad faith who is going right. to manipulate it that way well th- there's a critical player here who we haven't talked about and that's the attorney general of the united states of america when we went through well, that bush makes v. me Gore, feel more comfortable <laughs> when we went through bush v gore the democrats obviously held the white house president clinton was in office attorney general was janet reno who had served every day eight years uh, she was a veteran. She was ferociously independent, sometimes frustratingly <laughs> independent, but really committed, uh, God rest her soul, to the rule of law. She did not put her thumb on the scale. She never said, and both Bush and Gore were making arguments, and I thought Bush's were really fraudulent, dishonest. She never said anything about that. She didn't manipulate or weigh in in any way. William Barr has already lied about mail-in voting. He is uh, brilliant and deceitful in equal measures. He testified before Congress. He said, you know, it'd be very easy for a foreign power to forge these mail-in ballots and just flood our mail with forged ballots. And I thought, well, gee, my 35 years in politics suggests that's actually not very likely. So I dug into it. Uh, There's a reporter named Caitlin Huey Burns at CBS who did a really great couple of pieces on this. She went to Colorado. They have 100% voting by mail. And she went to Jefferson County, the biggest county in Colorado, includes Denver. In that one county, in that one state, there are 500 different styles of ballots that you would have to forge. 500 different styles. And each individual ballot has a barcode, which can only be read by the county's computer system. And each individual ballot has a unique number that's assigned to that voter. And each individual ballot has a security sleeve that the voter has to sign. And each individual ballot has to have a a signature match. And it is absolutely impossible. The Brennan Center studied Colorado's vote by mail system. They found 0.0000001%, 0.0000001%, one ten millionth of 1% fraud. But the attorney general didn't say that. He didn't tell the truth. He foisted a lie before the Congress suggesting that somehow a vote by mail could be easily forged and it is impossible to forge it. And he's going to weigh in on this in this interregnum after Trump is defeated and before Biden is sworn in. And I think he can do enormous damage to our constitutional system. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, on that cheerful note, 
and not only that, he's in with the plutocrats. You know, yeah. they're all together on this one. Uh, I think the two important people are, are going to be Obama and Bush are going to have to do a little civic education that week because they could be a brighter lantern than Trump to counterbalance it. Very yeah, I think that I, I really do think this is going to be a fragile, a really, really fragile moment for our democracy. And we've learned how much our democracy relies on, you know, a common understanding of rules and laws and norms. And good uh, faith. And so, uh, you know, the, you're right, uh, Mike, that the, those those two former presidents uh, are going to, they, they can play a really important role here in trying to help the country through what could be a, and look, um, you know, none of us know, the outcome is not foreordained here. None of us know what it is, but um, I think Trump is behaving like a guy who uh, understands or, or is preparing for the exit. And I've said there are only two outcomes in his mind. He wins or the election was stolen. There's no third right, right. option. And he's setting it up lunatic president they will bend reality and and lie about it right okay then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back shall we go to the great democratic institute of hacks on tap the mailbag Hey, uh, Begala, I know you're doing a lot of media and a lot of podcasts and all that stuff, but you don't get stuff like that everywhere. Okay, uh, We don't have jingles. I did Pluff's podcast. Pluff does not have jingles. Al Franken doesn't have jingles. You guys have jingles. You're I know. Bonafide. Check the ratings. We know what they want. <laughs> I know. By the way, the mailbag works, right? Mail actually got delivered and the postal yeah, service brought yeah, Well, it we you. do it electronically. We're not fools. <laughs> We're not going to trust them. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hackaroos, if you have a mailbag question for the Hacks, you can send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget, please, to rank us, rate us, insult us, anything you want to do on Apple Podcasts, because that's where the algorithm finds out what people want to see, and they push our podcast out to new ears, and we like that. So, Hacks, first question, what do we got? For you, brother, from someone suspiciously named David, says, Mike, hypothetically, if you knew that Biden's election would mean 12 years of Democratic rule, Biden for four, his running mate for eight, would you still vote for Biden or would you vote for Trump or would you sit this one out as I will? Ah, crafty question, mysterious David. Well, that reminds <laughs> me of one of my favorite undergraduate questions after a lot of beer. If Napoleon had nuclear subs, would we all be speaking French today? So that is a hypothetical. I, I can't predict the future and make a voting decision on it. I know that Trump is basically human teeth decay. He's not a conservative. He's not a president. And he's not a patriot. So for all those reasons, the one binary choice I can make is I can't vote for Trump. And by the way, my Republican friends who just, after the campaign particularly, just can't flip the lever for Biden it's okay to write in Ronald Reagan. Just deny Trump your vote. Better to vote for Biden. That's what I'm going to do, unless uh, he doesn't pick Gina Raimondo. Uh, <laughs> but I, I definitely am not going to vote for Trump. So, And by the way, I don't think that'll happen. I think Biden will have a term, and we're going to have a civil war in the party. We're either going to rebuild it and go beat you know, frontrunner Kamala Harris or whoever it might be, or we're going to do Trump Jr. or something, and we deserve to lose again. So I like that, that sword of Damocles of a... a lefty future hanging over us to force us to get our church in order on the right and create a candidacy for an opportunity conservative who ought to win. So I'm, I'm nothing is going to get me to vote for Trump. Let me ask you something about that, because I'm really fascinated about what happens if Trump loses, what happens next, because Trump's not going away. You know, he's going to take over OAN. And by the way, OAN, uh, the question uh, from the OAN reporter yesterday, who he always calls on, uh, was uh, if Susan, do you think that he'll pick Susan Rice so she can cover up for Obama's crimes from the vice president's office? <laughs> this is a question that was asked in the press room, uh, but I think he's going to take over well, the that answer network. Is hell yes, but yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> the, he's going to take over that network and he's going to run a, uh, you know, a resistance campaign 
and and he's going to try and keep control of the Republican Party. But it's so profoundly stupid, as if Joe Biden didn't like Barack Obama. Like Joe's going to have his back anyway. I mean, it's just it's like so. Well, I mean, they're stupid. Yeah, they're like a hundred ways to call that question stupid. But anyway, I'm sorry, but nobody confuses the OAA newsroom with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. You know, they're meat puppets. Uh, so, I, I, two theories. Don't know the truth. One is we're in a dynasty, and it is Donald Trump Jr. or God knows some cheap imitation. The other theory is there was a lot of talk during the peak of Sarah Palindom about how she'd run the party, and right now she's in Mesa, Arizona, opening a snowmobile dealership for a hundred bucks. So, <laughs> I, I think the rotten fish factor may hit Trump a lot harder than people think. We'll see. Parties don't like losing, and since Trump. It's going to be at least nine governorships. It's the House, worse since Watergate, and the odds are pretty high we're going to lose the Senate. So I think the stench on Trump after the disaster is going to be pretty severe. So my gut is it won't be the Trump diktat, but we don't know. We're going to have to have the fight. The key to it, Texas. My beloved Texas, my, my Billy is working for the Democrats in Texas. Billy was born in Austin. He's 24, and no Democrat has ever won Texas in his entire life. Democrats are knocking on the door now. Beto O'Rourke was within two and a half points of Ted Cruz the last cycle without presidential turnout surge. They're knocking on the door. If Biden plays in Texas or if Mike Bloomberg, as I said on Plus Podcast, Mike Bloomberg invests $100 million in Texas, Texas could flip. And if it does, it obviously changes the entire map of politics. Uh, but it also, I think, would tend to moderate the Republicans. Right. Because if they lose their biggest state, the largest state right now where Trump leads outside the margin of error is Tennessee. He, he's he's trailing outside the margin of error in every big state in America. But if you lose Texas, the linchpin, then you lose everything. And I actually think that would foster moderation in the Republican Party and renewal, because when you lose that. You, you, you've lost everything. It is you know? trouble. Um, actually, in Florida, it's down to four points right now. I think. Uh, oh, okay. It's but but your your point, yeah. Texas would be a, a major mind bender. But Trump is not GOP. leading outside the margin of error. I think it's a long Florida. shot, but yeah. Uh, okay, so here here's one for David from Fran. You've talked about how Trump will attack Biden in the debates and how Biden should be ready to respond. But what strategy should Biden use to attack Trump? It's a really interesting strategy because. Um, there is a temptation to uh, respond in kind every time Trump erupts. And you have to pick your spots. I think there are moments in that debate when uh, Trump will say something outrageous uh, and Biden should use that as a kind of emblematic of Trump and the way Trump has run the, you know, the country and the way he has behaved as president and ask people if... Uh, if we can really, we, we used to ask, are we better off than we were four years ago, which a valid question should be asked again. But the real question here is, uh, can we really do this for four more years? Uh, because he's not going to change. This is what you're going to get on steroids uh, for four more years. More chaos, more petty fights, more self-absorption, uh, and, uh, and, and it's going to hurt you, uh, as, we've been, as we've seen during this uh, pandemic. Now, there are places, particularly on the economic uh, front, as Paul has mentioned, where I would definitely go on the offense. But you don't want to get sucked into kind of a, uh, a sophomoric uh, exchange of name calling for 90 minutes with Donald Trump, because Trump always wins in that kind yeah, of Yeah, that's his game. Yeah. I, I would add to that, X. That's exactly right. More more of what we Catholics call Michigas, more chaos, more and less health care. Yes, I, yes, I yes. Just I just spoke with someone who was doing folks groups in Michigan, where you are, with yes. Trump voters, all Trump voters. It was a Democrat trying to swing them over. All these Trump voters, they were astonished that Trump hasn't delivered his promised health care plan. They really believed that Obamacare was suspect and that Trump would give them what he promised, which was better care for less money. And he's given them nothing. And they're really angry about it. Yeah, they, they they don't talk about oh the misogyny or the the you know the racism right. and uh, they don't. But they say you know I thought that guy was going to replace Obamacare with something better and cheaper, and he's given us nothing. So in addition to oh you're going to get more of the chaos, is more chaos, less health care. Right. No, I agree. You got to connect all of that right. with the stuff that touches people's lives, which is the central central 
theory of your of your book. But one thing uh, that's all, all over the data is people who bought into Trump, and sometimes the Dems get in a bubble where they can't imagine anybody would do that, so they think it's some dumb yes. redneck. Uh, but people bought into Art of the Deal that he would deliver, that he could get th- things done in D.C. because he wasn't right. part of the swamp. And that's been the abject lie of the administration. It's a huge vulnerability. This is, but this speaks to a Democratic vulnerability, Mike, and I'm glad you brought it up. My party, and I love my party. I've spent my whole adult life in it. But they got a problem with, with intellectual elitism, a terrible problem. It's real. A lot of elite Democrats love to look down their nose mm-hmm. at Trump voters. Totally right. Oh, how could I they agree. fall for this con? You know what? I, I worked one of the smartest people I ever worked for was Frank Lautenberg, senator from New Jersey, passed now. He was known CEO, plutocrat, but go ahead. A known plutocrat, CEO of ADP, who was a data pioneer, made millions and millions and millions of dollars. You know what he did? He invested part of his foundation with Bernie Madoff. Total con, total con. Frank was the smartest businessman I knew, at least. He was absolutely brilliant. And yet he, the con. I asked him, I was like, Frank, how could you do that? How could you believe that con man? He said, I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And that's what Trump voters, they wanted to believe. It's not a character flaw to want to believe that someone can come in and drain the swamp and give you better health care for, for less money and bring fundamental change and cut deals. I, I just think it's really important for Democrats to stop looking down their noses at people who honestly believed that Trump was a change agent. Yeah, no, look, and I think this is, this is Mike, your group, the uh, Republican Voters Against Trump, have done a real service by mm-hmm. airing these uh, videos of Republicans who are explaining why they've, 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 they're off of Trump now, mm-hmm. because it's important to create a, 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 a permission structure for Republicans who want to vote uh, for Biden, uh, you have, but you have to build a bridge for them to walk across, right. or that you have to let them build a bridge, right? And show they're not alone. You know, strength in numbers. Yeah, yeah. And right. and 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 the way to do it is not saying you know you were a stupid asshole last time, but yeah. come <laughs> Dear, on. Oh, you're a racist. Dear moron, listen up. Hey, Rube, yeah. come on over here and stand <laughs> yeah. with the the, the, yeah. the educated. So uh, that that is not right. But I have to say. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I think we're going to have to skip the last call. I think we are. We've, we've hit our time limit, and we only pay for one hour of the hamster's time on the wheel here. So, <laughs> Paul Begala, let's uh, let's give one more plug. You're fired. Fired, Donald yes. Trump. Bookstores and Amazon and local independent bookstores today. It's very, very readable book. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it, and I always enjoy being with you, brother. Thanks for Thanks for being with us today. Guys, you're terrific. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. We'll bring you back for a final dagger near the end. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 